right, so let's let's go to Mark. Let's go to Mark chapter 6 this morning. Open God's Word with me there. This may seem a little bit more like a history and hermeneutic lesson than a sermon this morning in some ways. Actually, Caleb touched on a couple of things that I thought, I wish I would have actually thought about that. I could have looked this up a whole lot faster and figured this out. But there is a literary gap that we will look at today in the passage before us. And let me tell you, it was a little bit tricky for me to navigate. It wasn't that it's just hidden or anything. It's just that I didn't quite grasp how it all worked. And I hope that today uh, God will help you and I both understand it better. I'm going to read in your hearing verses 1 to 30. Don't be afraid, I'm not going to cover all that. Not at least like I normally would. I'm going to be focusing mainly this morning on the mission of the apostles in verses 7 to 13. But we will need to read the entirety of the text to understand, I think, what Mark intends us to learn from this. Beginning in verse 1, speaking of Jesus, and went away from there and came to his hometown, Nazareth, right? And his disciples, his learners, his followers followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And perhaps one of the saddest verses in the New Testament, verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there, meaning he would not do a mighty work there, except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And then this startling verse in verse 6, or this He marveled. He marveled. Jesus marveled at something here. He marveled because of their unbelief. I mean, what a sad thing for Jesus to marvel at. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he left. It says he went about among the villages teaching. He he left. Historically, we know that he, he, he likely never, ever came back to Nazareth again. Never to return. He left. Then in verse 7. It says, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics, two shirts. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miracle powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, John, whom I beheaded has been raised. (laughs) For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This is adultery. What he's saying, the brother was still alive. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter 
came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, the messenger of repentance. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately, immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. There's a tender verse here in verse 29. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And then verse 30, out of nowhere. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is a really strange setup in Mark's gospel here. Generally speaking, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is at the center of everything. And it's not the case here in this narrative. Normally we see Jesus, the Son of God, fulfilling his mission in the world by himself even, right? Most of the time you just see Jesus. Up to this point, it's Jesus doing the healing. It's Jesus doing the preaching. It's Jesus confronting those who are in error. And he's then followed by a bunch of... uh, um, ragtag men, right? These guys who follow him around and ask dumb questions because they still haven't got everything together yet. But they've been following Jesus up to this point for almost two years. But here in chapter 6, we see a transition taking place. Here now, we see something take place in verse 7 that's very interesting. In verse 7, Jesus is calling the 12 men that had followed him, those he had gathered to himself to be with him, to be trained by him. They could observe him. They could listen to him. They could ask questions of him. Now he's taking those 12 ragtag disciples and going to send them out to magnify and replicate his message as his apostles. This is a this is a massive transition. These guys, I mean, if you read the accounts of these guys up to this point, they're really dense at this point. And it's like, why would you pick these 12 ordinary men for such an amazing and extraordinary mission? But he sends them out here to magnify himself, to replicate his message and his mission as his specially sent ones, his commissioned ones. These apostles in this position, this commission they're given here, it's, it's unique and it's an historical event here that's going to happen through these men. God is historically setting these men apart as the foundation pillars of the church. So this is a unique and historical group. And, and before we can really get into 7 to 13, we have to back up a little bit, though. Before I can really go on... I think we all probably need to understand something about the odd layout here in this narrative. Because the layout in this narrative is unique strictly to Mark's gospel. Do you see the oddities in it? You probably see some really strange things when you first look at this from verse 1 to verse 30. You see sort of, it's like it's kind of like Mark's drifting all over the place. It's like like talking to an old man about his war stories. One minute he's over there in Japan and another minute, you know, he's back here at home. But no, he's still in Japan and the story goes on. This is kind of what it's like reading Mark at this point. So to understand um, his writing style here, here's what we have to do. We have to to learn that this seemingly strange combination of scenes that we we find in verses 1 to 6 and in verses 14 to 31, those things all fit together in this one story that Mark is portraying for us about Jesus' message and his mission and how that will affect ours. There's a combination of scenes here that were actually given to us in this order by the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, to help us understand Jesus' message and mission on earth, the apostles' unique mission in time, and our mission as Christ's ambassadors today. 
But to see all that, what we have to first do is understand this writing technique that Mark uses in different places in his gospel. This, this technique is, is, some of you may know this, this technique is sometimes called a Markian sandwich. You won't order that at Subway, all right? A Markian sandwich. It's, it's an odd but appropriate term. And here's what Mark does in this chapter and in his gospel. He often takes two different stories and inserts what seems like an unrelated story into the middle of them. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's doing here. And, and here's why he does that here. He does that here. He, he takes this story of John the Baptist and the story of Jesus in Nazareth, and he, he puts those as bookends, if you will, of the story in the middle. And he does that to help shed lights on the mission of the apostles and the mission that we are called into as Christ's ambassadors. What he's doing here, Mark is telling us that, that, that you need to pay attention. There's a, there's a connection here between these stories, the stories of 1 to 6 and 14 to 29. There's a connection in the story about one great Savior who goes home and is rejected and one faithful messenger, John, who is executed. And in the middle of those two stories, we find the story about the disciples' first apostolic mission in verses 6 B to 13. So when we see things like that, we should ask questions, right? Hermeneutically, we should ask questions. What's the connection, Mark? What's going on in your mind? I don't understand this layout. But to find that out, we have to first, I think, look at verses 6 to 13 again. Because this is really the inside of our Markian sandwich, okay? This is the inside. The bread on each side is 1 to 6. And then 14 to 29, but in the middle is the meat, right? There it is. He says this, verse 6b, he went out among the villages teaching. So he leaves Nazareth, and then immediately he goes from being rejected into calling the twelve to begin to send them out two by two and give them authority over the unclean spirits. He is commissioning them. He's delegating his own divine authority in this mission and his message to these men to continue it on once he has completed his mission on earth. And then he gives them some instructions. He, he charged them not to take anything for their journey except a staff. No bread. No, no, no bag. No bag means no, no, I don't know how to put it. Um, you, you know, you've driven through Oklahoma City and you see the guy on the corner with the sign, you know, help me, you know, feed me, give me your money. And they got a box out front. You throw money in. That's what he's talking about. It's a, it's a beggar's bag. Basically, don't show up looking like you need something from people. Like, feel sorry for me. I'm but a beggar. Don't take a bag like that. Take no money in your belt. That was like your wallet. But wear sandals, he says. Don't put on two tunics. And he said to them, whatever or whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So basically, you're going to the lost sheep of Israel. And if they won't listen to you, treat them like a Gentile as a testimony against them. This is also a merciful act. You have to realize, okay? When you see someone rejecting the message and Christ's work, you should tell them why you're departing from them. Give them an opportunity to repent. This was an open testimony, a public testimony, a witness to show them you have not submitted your life to the one who is here to save you, the Messiah, the Son of God. We're leaving. This is your last opportunity to come to faith in Christ and repent of your sins. So it was a testimony. It wasn't an angry judgment against a community, a city, a house, a person. It was a merciful act. It displayed that they were going to be without hope in this world unless they come to Christ in faith. Then he says in verses 12 and 13, when these guys got this message, when these men heard Jesus' commission and his instruction, they reacted immediately. They went out. What a testimony to the irresistible grace of God. When they heard this gracious gift that they're called into Christ's mission and his message is going to be given to them. They could replicate it. They would replicate him. They would magnify him. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. 
And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil, many who were sick and healed them. They anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. But the primary ministry they had was to preach to them. They did the healings to confirm. They cast out the demons to confirm that their message was Christ's message. They were doing exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, often we see in the gospel accounts, heals people. The blind, the deaf, raises the dead. All those physical miracles, physical signs of his power and authority display his mercy, right? But the ultimate mercy would come through the proclamation of his message. Those who had eyes blinded by sin would be open to the gospel. Those who were deaf to hear Christ's merciful call would have their ears open. Those who were dead in their sins and trespasses would be raised to newness of life. All the physical miracles really were just giving you an example of what he's going to do spiritually through the proclamation of the gospel as these men carry it out into the world even after Jesus has completed his mission on earth as our Savior. So again, up to this point, normally we would see Jesus at the forefront. In Mark's gospel, Jesus' divine mission is, is really the focus of all the narratives. The mission of the Son of God. To seek and to save that which was lost, right? But now there's this big transition, this huge transition that's taking place in this mission. And we can see a hint of that. Go back to Mark 3. You see a hint that this is going to happen. There's an allusion to it here in Mark 3, 13. When he called those men to follow him as his disciples. And he went up on a mountain, it says, on the mountain. And called to him, 3.13, those whom he desired, and they came to him. Immediate response. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. That really didn't come until Mark 6, 30. But he appointed the 12 so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. That's the reason for his calling. Then he lists the men that he called. So even there, Jesus is calling to himself those whom he desired to be with him, to be trained by him, and prepared for their mission, which is to magnify his as his apostles. Now, his choice of of these 12 men, really, you have to understand, you have to really understand the weightiness of the choice of 12. He chose these men particularly to play a huge role in the completion even of his divine mission on earth. Because a major part of Jesus' mission was to do what we see him doing here with these twelve. A major part of Jesus' mission on earth was to reconcile to God and unite a people on earth that would remain and do his work after his earthly mission was complete. That's what we're seeing take place here in the choosing of these twelve men. What we're doing is we're getting a glimpse of the next phase of Jesus' mission on earth. The building of his church. In these men, we see Christ's fledgling or infant church. And we learn the church's future mission because we see it start to take place and take shape through the lives and ministry of these 12 men that he delegated his authority to in Mark 6, 7. That's what it says. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority. He gave them authority. He delegates his authority. His divine authority, he delegates to them so they would replicate him. And it's also so that they would continue to finish the work that he intended for them. Because through these 12 men, we would see the fulfillment of what the 12 tribes of Israel only represented. Jesus' 12 disciples here would reveal that that what the 12 tribes of Israel were pointing to was the true foundation that would be only found in these foundation stones. Because through these foundation stones, the true church, the Israel of God, the church itself will be raised up, will be laid upon this foundation. And the laying of this foundation was a critical part of Jesus' overall mission on the earth. Look at Ephesians 2 with me. Ephesians 2. Listen, saints, when when Jesus lays a foundation, no one else needs to lay another one. That foundation was intended and designed by God for a purpose. Ephesians 2, 
19 gives us a hint of that. So then you are no longer strangers, right? You're no longer strangers. You've gained access in one spirit to the Father, he says. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the oikos of God, the, the family of God, the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what Mark is pointing to here as he highlights Jesus' calling of the twelve into this particular foundational ministry and mission. These purposes will take shape as we continue to watch these men walk with Christ, follow Christ, and then labor with Christ as his representatives and remain after Christ ascends from the earth into glory and continue on their work that magnified his ministry. See, when, when Jesus calls these men, what, you, what we need to understand, what we need to grasp, I think this is really important for us practically, these men weren't simply, we think, we talk about the disciples a lot. We even talk about the apostles. Sometimes we get these confused. We think about all the many disciples that follow Jesus. But we're talking about the particular 12 here. But in one sense, if you are a disciple of Christ, this even applies to you today. He called these men to be disciples, right? Learners, mathetes. He did that so that they would also be laborers eventually with him and his mission. And, and although their apostolic ministry is unique to these 12, we need to understand something personally, practically here that applies to us. There's something to teach us in this. Even though we aren't called to be apostles, we are called by God to be disciples, learners. But you need to understand we're not called to be learners only. We're to be doers, laborers in Christ's mission. That's why he called us. He called us to send us in his name for his praise and the good of the lost to exalt Christ through our mission. You're not apostles, though. Make sure that I'm clear on that, okay? You are not an apostle. No one today is an apostle on the earth. The apostles had no successors. And I'm talking about apostles with a capital A here. Apostles, they had no successors And they didn't because their mission and their ministry was unique and foundational to the church and our existence. We're built upon them. It was foundational. Their ministry, understand this, their ministry, to be an apostle, there were certain requirements that must be met. Acts 1 talks about some of those. You don't have to turn there, but Acts 1, 21 and 22. There were certain requirements. So, so to be an apostle, here's it's kind of my summary of that and other places that I find information about that in the New Testament. To be an apostle, one must be one who saw the resurrected Lord Jesus in the flesh. And any man that claims that today is a liar. Jesus said when he comes again, he will split the sky wide open as lightning comes from the east to the west. There'll be darkness all around when Christ returns in his victory. Every eye will see. But to be an apostle, you must have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus in the flesh. And you must be able to do what Christ uniquely commissioned them to do. Exactly what they could do. What they did was they reflected and replicated the ministry of Christ. They did his work. They did that through miraculous signs that would confirm that their message, the message was the point, but these confirmations came to point to the clarity and the validity of the message that it was from God. And they were to continue doing that, and we see them continuing doing that until we see it start to drift off a little bit further into the New Testament. Because these men weren't only to do these miraculous signs to confirm the message, they were to be inspired by God the Holy Spirit to write the text of the New Testament. They pen scriptures. And if you claim you're getting revelations from God that need to go to the back of Revelation, you are a heretic. There are no new revelations from God. There is one sure and firm and true revelation. You have it in your hands. The whole counsel of God is before you. 
But these men, they had a foundational purpose. That's the point of the apostles. It was foundational to the building up of the church, the household of God. And when Christ's household is built by the chief cornerstone himself and laid on the foundation here of these apostles, no other man can come along and try to renovate that or change that or lay another foundation because Jesus laid this one. And that's what we see just in the upfront part of this, this narrative. Their ministry was foundational. And it was a part of Christ's ongoing mission on earth to bring forth the church. Now, look back at, at Mark 6. I'm not going to read all these to you again. I'm just going to point out a few things to you. You know, I, I read a tremendous amount of commentaries on each one of these verses from 7 to 13. And, man, guys have like 10-page sermons on verse 7. They're smarter than me, I guess, because, you know, I know there's a lot there. I'm not going to exegete every bit of this, but I just want to point out a few things that I think are important that are applicable in the context of the narrative that Mark gives us here. Because here, I think in Mark 6, 7 to 13, we we learn a few things about how the apostles' mission, though we aren't apostles today, how their mission still shapes our mission today as Christ's ambassadors. In verse 7, he calls the 12 and begins to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So these men were divinely, first of all, we see in the beginning of the verse, they were called. They were divinely summoned into their mission. This summons wasn't an option. It's not an option when Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, calls you into his work. Jesus' call on your life and my life today also is not an invitation. It's a command to join him in the mission. The mission he set forth for us, built on the foundation stones of the apostles. Jesus' call on our lives is not an invitation to join. It's actually summons to walk with him, to magnify him. He commissions these men in particular into that mission And delegates authority to them. His authority. Again, like I said. I mean, these guys were divinely summoned into their ministry. And we need to understand that we are as well. We're divinely summoned. When when God calls you to salvation, you're not put in a static position. You're called into action. That is the point of your regeneration. It's to make you an ambassador, a reflection, that one that would magnify Christ here on the earth, not in the same way as the apostles, but standing on the foundation of the apostles, declaring their words and their works that magnified and exalted Christ. That's what they're called to do. They had a unique, they had a unique ministry, but it wasn't up to them to join it. They were commanded to follow him and go into it. They were his ambassadors. And we are to be his ambassadors. Look at 2 Corinthians. And look what should drive us to be his ambassadors and follow his command. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. What motivates us in our mission? The same thing that motivated the apostles in theirs. The love of Christ. The sheer fact that the God of the universe, creator and sustainer of all things... Savior, who sacrificed his life in the place of sinners, he loves me, that should control me. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore, he says, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Mission is not an option for us. We're no longer to live for ourselves, but for his glory, for his sake. But for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus to be no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're supposed to proclaim this, magnify Christ through this, as we go out for him in the mission as his ambassadors. He says, that is, in Christ, 
God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, beg you, plead with you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Hmm. For our sake, God, the father made God, the son to be sin who knew no sin. So that in God, the son, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We have been granted this cloak of Christ's blood soaked righteousness. It's over us. It covers us. And in doing that, it's equipping us with that so that we can go out into the world and reflect that through our lives and our mission. Just as these men, because we have been divinely summoned by the God who saved us himself. Therefore, we go. Back in chapter 6 of Mark, verses 8 to 13, there's a lot here, right? But basically, Mark's going to say here that, look, these, these, these men are sent onto an, into an apostolic mission. But that apostolic mission came with practical, practical or purposeful instructions and a powerful message to proclaim. If I could just sum up those verses. Their apostolic mission came with practical but not perpetual instructions. They were given these practical instructions to build reliance in their hearts on God. And they were given a powerful and perpetual message, the one that we proclaim. Look at that message. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. This was the apostolic message. This is Paul's message. This is our message. This is the church's message forever. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. For Consider that here, brothers, sisters. Not many of us here were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were no, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Here's why. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let The one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. That was their message. That's our message. They were given that message and they were given given practical instructions. Our mission is like that too. It's, It's filled with practical instructions. And one of those is to go and keep on going to the world proclaiming the gospel. Make disciples of Christ. Reach the nations. Reach your neighbor. Magnify his work through yours as ambassadors of Christ. Back there in, in 8 to 13, the first couple of verses there, when he charges them to take nothing on their journey, what he's doing here is this, okay? Just look at it. It's just a real practical thing. He's basically saying to him, I called you right now, just go. You got one thing you, have, you need to have on your mind. I called you and you're sent. I've given you what you need. Just go, right? Just go. Take nothing, he says. Take nothing except your staff. Wear some sandals. Basically, what you got on, go. He gives this to them, though, for a purpose. And the purpose that really should apply to us in this way. So that when they're called into their mission, they would rely on nothing else but God's provisions. The God who calls us into the mission will provide for us as we obey his mission. As we magnify the work of Christ. That's what he's saying to them. See, the apostles' mission was more specific than ours. And I realize that. You realize that. They were to exactly replicate Christ's work and his message. And ours is simply to magnify it. We magnify it by proclaiming it. But sometimes we can get so afraid of going out and doing the work because we don't have everything arranged the way it ought to be. Maybe I need more time. Maybe I need more money. Maybe I need more resources to help me. More books. Oh, well, I shouldn't have said that one. But more stuff to to equip you, right? But listen, what God has given you in the gospel and the command to go out with it is all that you need. You can rely on him to sanctify you through it and magnify Christ's work as you go out to do 
what he's called you to as his ambassadors. That's really the point. There's more I could bring out of that, but I'm not going to today. But there's practical things going on here. You come down again. I mentioned this earlier, you know, in, in verse 11, but in verse 10, he tells them, Wherever you enter, stay there until you depart from there. Basically, don't don't come. To, you're a hot shot. You're coming to town. You can cast out demons and heal sick people. People will invite you in. Sometimes it won't be the people you want to invite you in. Sometimes it's the first house you come to, and it may be the most run down, dirty, filthy place you could imagine. And you think I'm just going to solicit someone else to call me home to eat dinner with them today. He says, No, go and be satisfied. This is where I've called you to faithfully magnify Christ. Stay there. Be content in God's wisdom in placing you there. He is sovereign after all. Calvinists, there are no accidents. There is only God's providence and opportunity. And in his providence, he tells them, be satisfied with where I send you. Stay there. Be faithful in that ministry. Then if they don't listen, he says, again, Give this testimony. Shake off the dust. Treat them like Gentiles as a testimony so that they would repent. Verse 12. They went out after hearing this and they began to proclaim that people should repent. That is all people everywhere. All men everywhere are commanded to repent and believe the gospel. That's what they proclaimed. And to confirm their message was from God, and it was exactly the message Jesus preached. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The anointing with oil was symbolic. It wasn't medicinal at this stage at this, for this purpose. It was to say that the Spirit of God is in this. It is the Spirit who is doing this work. And it symbolized the anointing of Jesus as they came and did that. It was a symbolic gesture and confirmation that they were sick and now they're healed because Jesus did this work through them. He delegated his authority to do that to them. And they cast out many demons through his authority. They didn't do any of this to magnify their ministry. They didn't do any of this to sustain their comfort in the ministry. They did all these things to point everyone they encountered to Christ, their Savior and their Lord and Master, whom they were called to represent faithfully. Then jump down. This is where the story gets kind of out of order, it seems like, right? So we have 7 to 13. It's the apostolic mission. But then all of a sudden, verse 30 appears out of nowhere, like I said earlier. So go there. It says that the apostles returned. The apostles returned to Jesus, and that's supposed to be picking up the thought of verse 13. After they went out, they returned to Jesus, probably days, months, weeks later, and they didn't all come at once. They sent them out two by two in wisdom. There's, there's safety in pairs. There's mutual accountability. There's confirmation of your testimony. And so they all probably didn't come back at the same time. Don't think of it like that. They didn't have text messaging. They didn't have a way to contact each other. They didn't have GPS. They didn't know where they, each other were. So they each start coming back, falling in to order under Jesus. The apostles returned to Jesus. This is the first time they're really called apostles. The first time they returned to Jesus. The special sent ones returned to the one who sent them. And what they do? They reported to him. They told him all that they had done and taught with the intent of exalting Christ. We did exactly what you said we could do. You provided for us in this mission. Luke tells us that that's what he reminds them of later on when he changes their instructions a little bit. Tells them to take extra stuff. He tells them to take other provisions because their ministry was going to be shifting. It was going to be different because Jesus was about to leave the earth in Luke 22. But here what we see going on in verse 30 is they're they're confessing, they're humbly confessing that they are they are submitting even their apostleship Under Christ's supervision, they're submitted to him in this mission. So they come back reporting to him, telling him what they were able to do by his grace and for his glory. They were under his supervision and their supervision in their mission. And we need to remember that we are, too, in our mission as Christ's ambassadors. We're under the ever watching gaze of our Savior and Lord. Are we coming back after we see something great happen in our ministry and our witness and going Man, I'm like an awesome Christian. Yeah. People will be impressed with what I said today. Are we coming before Jesus saying, whatever I did 
of whatever happened and the good that came out of it, that was you, Jesus. Every preacher hopes for that when they preach. We want Jesus to be exalted. We're going to give an account to him one day. Not, not to receive punishment, to receive reward. But some of the things we do, if it's not done with the mind that understands you're under his supervision, that stuff will be burned up, wasted. But when you recognize you're under his supervision, it will guide you in the mission he's called you into. It'll guide you in humility in that mission to exalt Jesus, especially when you see success in it. Now, these men were just men. Like I said, they, they stumbled. They had hard times. They got confused. And so you can't tell me that a bunch of guys who one day, they can't figure out, you know, who's going to be sitting at Jesus' right hand in authority one day, fighting over it, or trying to pray that God would bring lightning from heaven and kill some guys. Those guys one day all of a sudden become so you know, pious on their own. No way. You know they were still being sanctified. And you go out, if you go out and do evangelism, and you see ten people Bow the knee to Christ. Repent of their sins. You come back and you report it. There's a little part of you that's like, I was faithful. I was good. That's because you have indwelling sin still haunting you. And you know that these men probably would have been haunted by that themselves. I mean, we just cast out demons. We just healed this leper. We just raised a little girl from the dead. But when they recognized that all that work was done under Christ's submission and supervision... They didn't exalt themselves. They exalted their Savior, their Master, their Lord. We have to keep that in mind as Christ's disciples today as well. Like those disciples, which became apostles, we're not called to just be learners, but laborers, right? We need to understand this because when, when Jesus summoned you to salvation, grasp this, understand this. Listen, there is no... I'm not really the guy or the girl to do this. No, you are if you're born again. When Jesus summoned you from the dead to salvation, he calls you into his mission. There's no, no exceptions here. Every Christian comes with this mission attached to their salvation. Our, our salvation did not come with an option for mission. We are saved to be in Christ's mission, to exalt his name, to proclaim his glorious grace, to proclaim his gospel and do it for his praise. And we also do it with the compassion that you see in Jesus' healing and the healing of the apostles of those who were sick and demonized. You do it, you proclaim it, you go forth in it for the glory of Christ and for the good of the lost. You do it because that's your mission. And that was the reason for your salvation. So that you could make much of Jesus throughout your life. By being a faithful ambassador of his message in the mission he called you into in your salvation. Now go back, go back to Mark 6. Earlier I said that uh, I want to look at the uh, mission of the apostles that we see there in 7 to 13 and 30. And we did. But what we need to understand is this is where the hermeneutic lesson comes in, right? 7 to 13 and verse 30 actually form the inside of the Markian sandwich. So now we're going to look at the outside parts. So on, on one side of the, the sandwich, right, on one side we have the story of Jesus' rejection in his hometown, verses 1 to 6. On the other side of the story, we have John the Baptist's execution. So what do we have? We have a, a rejection account and an execution account. But why are these here? Well, they're here because I think there's a lesson there for us about what to expect in our mission as Christ's ambassadors. And that lesson is this. Listen closely. The lesson is this. Success in Christ's mission is often sandwiched in between rejection and opposition. Success in his mission is often going to come sandwiched in between rejection, personal rejection, and fierce opposition. Look at verse 14. That's what we see happening here. King Herod heard about Jesus' name being proclaimed. Right? He heard of it. He heard of the testimony of the apostles. For Jesus' name had become known. Isn't that a great statement? The apostles' name didn't become known. They were doing the work accurately. They were successful in their mission. Jesus was exalted. He was replicated. He was praised. That's what Herod hears here. He hears that Jesus' name has become known. Now, some of these guys got all messed up with it, right? They got all confused. He's John the Baptist raised from the dead. 
That's why he has these miraculous powers at work in him. There's a lot of superstition going on in these, these things. There's also some safety zones, like, like the guy who doesn't just think he's Elijah. He just says he's like a prophet, like one of those other prophets, right? But Herod, when he hears this, it's a different story because he's got a guilty conscience. When Herod heard of Jesus' name being known, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. There's an admission of guilt right there. I beheaded. Could have said Herodias beheaded. Or his daughter, stepdaughter, whatever she was, kind of both, but could have said it was her. So what, what's Mark doing in introducing Herod to us here in this way? I mean, think about this. This is Herod, Herod Antipas, right? He was the ruler of Galilee at this time. Now, he calls himself a king. That's a feigned title. He was, he was taking that to himself. He was no king. He was a tetrarch. He was a ruler of Galilee because of his daddy. That's the only reason. He was Herod the Great's lesser son. And you all remember Herod the Great, right? Herod the Great is the one who sought to kill Jesus as a child. And what we learn here about Herod is he's not much different than his father. He allows John, the messenger of Jesus, to be murdered. He orders it. He's as wicked as his father. But in verses 14 to 16, like I said, you see this vivid portrayal of the success of the mission of the apostles Success in magnifying Christ so much so that it was echoing now into Herod's own ear in his little kingdom. But when Herod heard that Jesus' work was going forth with miraculous power and authority, he immediately thought, oh no, John's back. John's back. It struck fear in this guilty man's heart because he had murdered John, the messenger of Christ. I thought, oh, here it is. It's going to happen all over again. He probably started hearing, repent. Repent, 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 just pounding in his head. So that's, that's what's happening here in this portion of Scripture, 14 to 16. He's, 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 Mark's bringing this one who opposed John and his work in view of the success of the work of the apostles. He's saying, look, you see this success? Well, John had success in many ways. He was a faithful messenger of Christ. Yet he was murdered because he was opposed by the wicked. So Mark's Mark's telling us something here by bringing the story of John's execution into the forefront. And when you read this thing, when you read 17 to 20, this is the most unusual and wicked story that you could ever imagine about a messed up family who hated Christ and his messengers. But it's placed here for that particular point. And 17 to 20, you just see how messed up this is. I mean, Herodias, she hates John. Herod got Herodias in an ungodly manner. I mean, think about it. It's a disaster waiting to happen here. It's like the worst soap opera you could ever imagine. But it's real life. Herod is an unholy man in an unholy marriage that's filled with betrayal, adultery, and incest. In case you didn't know. What he'd done, he'd, he'd divorced his first wife. And then Herodias divorced her first husband, which happened to be Herod's half-brother. And they did that so they could marry each other. And what's interesting in this later on in history, we learned that this eventually led to a war and the exile of Herod Antipas from his own kingdom. Herodias is a mess. He married this woman, though. He married her in the most bizarre of circumstances. She is his half-brother's wife. And not only that, she happens to be Herod's niece. This is incest. She was the daughter of his other half-brother. So this marriage is really beyond scandalous. It's, it's just wicked. So you can probably put that together with John's appearance, right, to Herodias and Herod. He, he probably didn't make their hit parade. He probably didn't make it on the list to any parties at their house. And he didn't because John came speaking the truth to them. He came and called them out and called them to repentance. But what they were doing was wicked, and God's wrath abided on them. I mean, John comes to them unvarnished, right? He's a prophet of God, a man who speaks forth the word of God to the people in need of that word. He's blunt. He's not delicate. He's not empathetic, whatever that means. He's prophetic. He knows that lives are at stake. The glory of God is at stake. Marriage is to be sacred and holy and reflect Christ's love for his bride, the church. And they're, they're defiling it in their actions. They're unholy. And they needed to be called out and called to repentance so they would be saved. And, they, and, and Herodias hated this about John. 
she hated the fact that John was not afraid to call any people and all people to repentance, including Pharisees and Sadducees, scribes. No matter who they are, no matter what their status was, John's going to speak the truth to their condition. And that infuriated Herodias because it pointed out her wickedness. And so what did Herodias do? Instead of turning in repentance, she turns inward in her sin to hatred. She wanted John dead, right? But it wouldn't happen. She couldn't get it to be accomplished. I'm sure she was plotting. I'm sure she was scheming. She was a wicked, wicked and bitter woman. Herod knew that. He married her. Could you imagine what it was like when she didn't get her way? Herod protected John because of his wife. He also protected John because he knew he was righteous and he was a holy man. And he feared him to some degree, but not enough. He feared his wife ultimately more than he feared John. But to, to kind of have a listen of John every once in a while, he, he protected John from his wife Herodias by putting him in jail for his own protection from her and probably to appease her because she's probably nagging and she's probably continually plotting. And he's saying, maybe this will stop if I put him in jail. He'll, he'll be kind of silenced in a, in a certain way. I can bring him in when I want to. He knew that wouldn't last. Herodias was clearly a bitter woman. She clearly had a murderous, calculating heart. And she'd already publicly made it clear that she hated John and she hated the message that he proclaimed, meaning she hated the God who sent it. Herod would not be able to hold her off forever. She was looking for a way to silence God's message and God's messenger. When she found it, she took it. There's a lot of people today who are wanting to do that with God's message and sometimes God's messengers. I hope that's not you today. If God is calling you through this message to repent of your sins and your self-righteousness, And turn in faith to Jesus. Today is the day to do that. Today is the day of salvation. There is a judgment for you if you don't. But in Christ there is a great reward of grace and mercy. Don't be like Herodias. Repent. Look to Christ. Herodias found a way to get rid of John and get him out of her conscience, she thought, in verses 21 to 28. Opportunity came, verse 21. When Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles, notice who's there, nobles, military commanders, and leading men of Galilee. There's no women allowed, okay, not in the sense of enjoying it. There are many there participating in it. So in that, Herodia thought, ah, this is my opportunity, because I know how Herod gets when he goes to these debacles. He gets drunk. His sinful tendencies flow out of his mouth. And so she took, she took advantage of that. She took advantage of her husband's weakness. And so what's she do? The most wicked thing I could even imagine in my mind as a parent. She prostitutes her own daughter to satisfy the wickedness of her heart and silence God's voice. That's what she's trying to do. Even in this culture, even in this situation, that was unheard of. You didn't let the princess do a striptease. That's the kind of dance that was taking place here. It was evil. It was pornographic. She knew she could take advantage. She knew that because he's done things like this in the past, I'm sure. And so she, she sees him ready and primed for this, sends her daughter out to achieve something that her wicked heart desires. And then, then, then what's he do? Well, he's trying to impress the men. Then I think he's trying to impress the girl, which, by the way, was a teenager, likely. So he makes this boastful vow to all present he offers half of his kingdom. It's really not his to offer. He's just it's hyperbole. He's trying to say, I'll give you whatever you want. He offers it to this girl. And this girl, you remember as you watch this play out, this girl's heart reflects her mother's heart. And this girl, I think if you read the account accurately, was willing to do this in this event. And I think she was even more wicked than her mother in the request that followed this vow. It went beyond her mother's evil heart. Her mother said, kill John, behead him. Execute him. What's she say? Bring his head on a platter. That's that's just cruel. That's just wicked. That's just dark. There's something evil in that. The evil of her heart was coming out of her mouth. And so here we we, we truly see the, the hatred and the opposition of God's message and his messenger by those who are wicked at heart. So, Mark, why did you include this dark and discouraging story in the midst of Christ's glorious commissioning of his sent ones, his apostles. Here's why. This story reveals to us an important lesson as disciples of Christ, those in his mission. Here's the lesson. We as as Christ ambassadors must remember that the glorious mission that we're called into, it takes place in a world 
that is truly opposed to Jesus and his message. There is real opposition, real rejection to come if you're faithful to Jesus. And so Mark wants us to know that. So he inserts this story into the sandwich, right? He inserts this story here to help prepare us for that opposition and and put our mission in a fuller context. That's what's happening in this glorious narrative. Our mission, he's telling us, as, as an example through the apostles, our mission like theirs is a glorious one. And it's our privilege as Christians to be called his ambassadors and called into his work. But we need to keep in mind our mission and our proclamation comes with real opposition and it will come with personal rejection. So when that happens, when you are rejected, when you are opposed, when you're even persecuted for Christ's sake, don't be surprised. Don't think that you failed in your mission. (laughs) Remember why he sent you forth, right? He didn't take you out of the world. He sent you forth into the world to be his ambassadors. And you're going to face what Jesus faced. You're going to face what the apostles would face. You're going to face what John faced if you're successful in proclaiming and exalting Christ through the message you've been given. That's what's happening here. You're, you're as Christ ambassador. Here's why you're going to not be surprised if your life ends up like John or Jesus or the apostles if you're faithful. Because if you're faithful as his ambassador, you're calling for people to repent of their sins. No one likes to admit that they're a sinner or they're as wicked as others. Some of you here don't think that you've ever been or ever would be as wicked as Herod. But you have been and you would be if Christ hadn't saved you. That's why we repent. Because our wicked hearts know no depth to this depravity that lies within us. But you're called to people who need to repent of those sins. You're called to proclaim that. You're called to proclaim to them that they need to trust in Jesus and honor him as Lord, as master of their lives. And they don't want that. They want to lead their life, do what they want. So it shouldn't shock us when we are rejected because it will happen. It happened to the apostles. It happened to Jesus. But let me just end with this. There's another one last lesson, a short lesson here to be learned from these accounts in this Markian sandwich when, when John shows up on the scene here, we, we see him informing us about what to expect in our mission. But he does more than that. He also informs us about the message of our mission. When, when he first appears in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, he's preparing the way for Jesus' mission. Here in Mark 6, what he's doing is this. This time he's showing up, and it's his message and his death that points to Jesus' message and his mission of death. Just think about this. John and Jesus, both were executed by sinful tyrants who knew they were innocent. Both Jesus and John were killed by rulers, weak-minded men who gave in to the wishes of others. John and Jesus both die innocently and righteously in their mission for their message. But there's one major difference between these two. John died as a faithful witness. Jesus died as our faithful substitute in our place. He died to quench God's holy wrath in our place for our sins. Jesus died to reconcile us to God. He he died to conquer sin and Satan's power over our lives, to set us free from captivity. And now because he did all that, because he, he has done all that, we are fully forgiven. We are forever secure. And now because of that, we are compelled by the love of Christ to go out into his mission and to call men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust in him. Follow him as your Lord and master. Church, that's the message that we have the privilege and that we are commanded to proclaim to a desperate world in need of Jesus. And that's why he saved us. And that is why he called us into his mission to make much of him. We're called to be salt and light in a dark and decaying world. We're called to go into this world and exalt the authority and the mercy of Christ who will eventually heal all people who trust in him fully of all their infirmities by giving us a new body one day in glory. He'll set us free from what enslaves us deeply, truly, sin and Satan's power. And only that message about Christ's authority and his divine mercy can set a sinner free and transform us into vessels of honor. That magnify Jesus. That's what he did for you and did for me if you're born again. That's why you need to proclaim it and continue proclaiming it. Continue taking the message forth. 
Do it for the good, the eternal good of the lost, and do it primarily for the glory and honor of Jesus' name. That's why we are called to salvation, is to make much of Jesus. That is our mission, and that is our honor as Christ's ambassadors in this world. We should never forget that when you read Mark, there's a call to us to do, in one sense, what the apostles do. Proclaim Jesus' message and magnify Jesus' work. Let's give thanks for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace to us as sinners. Thank you for the way you mercied us in Christ. And you granted to us everything that we need for life and godliness according to the knowledge of you and your word. Because Christ is our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification. You've given us more than we could ever ask or hope for in our forgiveness through his shed blood. We pray that we would honor that by taking forth your message of authority and mercy to a lost and dying world and make much of Christ in our mission. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.